this episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal, Wangal, and Bedigal people of the Eora Nation and the Dark people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott, and we're culture scholars who believe that good leaders are more interested in protecting the light than being a hero. Poe. We are joined today by special guest Sertan Saral. Sertan is a PhD candidate with the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. Sertan, tell us more about yourself. Thanks, Mia. Uh, I guess, broadly speaking, my research is in looking intersectionally at the ways democracy and militarism are mixed up in each other's business. At the moment, I'm specifically looking at uh, military veterans who run for public office in the United States, how that has been a pathway to power for predominantly cisgender white men. And that and that all means as one strand of the stratification of gender, race, sexuality, disability, and class in wider American society. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at military leadership tropes in Star Wars The Last Jedi and Battlestar Galactica. So this is a spoiler warning for those two media. Sertan, as the person with this research background, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about military tropes in general and also just a little bit more about militarism? I mean, militarism is a pretty broadly defined term. Uh, The way that I use it is anything, uh, is the culture around the military. So it's not just the military as an institution, but um, everything that kind of ties back into the act of uh, serving in the military and war in general, you know, so it can include films in pop culture, it can include, you know, um, science fiction novels, etc. It's quite, um, yeah, it's quite broadly defined. It can even include, like, famous presidential speeches or, or whatever. Anything that can kind of tie itself back to the military as an institution, I would say, falls under the broad category of militarism. So in terms of genre tropes, there are like a whole host of you know military related tropes in genre fiction. The uh, some of the main ones, uh, the ones that we'll be looking at, I suppose, are the ace pilot, who is you know generally one of the main characters, is the most talented fighter pilot um, in in the story. Often has some kind of chip on their shoulder is carrying some kind of legacy, uh, or is burdened or privileged with some kind of legacy, and the story closely follows their, their journey as well. Other tropes are the military leader, who is, again, generally speaking, a paternal figure or some kind of hard-nosed figure, somebody who deals in, you know, pragmatism, uh, perhaps with a touch of idealism, if not a, more than a touch. Somebody who, uh, yeah, everybody would kind of follow into into fire, essentially. And then you've got sort of an ideological leader who is often a counterweight to the military leader and uh, represents just a source of conflict for for the for the military leader and vice versa, actually, as well. Yeah. So yeah, those are the uh, those are just three of the tropes that's often in this type of fiction. Yeah, I have to say, thinking of, I'm a little bit conflicted already about how I feel about Poe, like as a person, and when I kind of conceptually think of him as Maverick from Top Gun, my God, I hate him so much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Poe is very deliberately drawn as a very problematic figure in these last Star Wars films, especially The Last Jedi. I mean, in The Force Awakens, he's kind of a happy-go-lucky, swaggery, you know, hopeful guy. But in The Last Jedi, he's uh, got a bit of an edge to him. Yeah, I think he's deliberately drawn as uh, problematic. But uh, uh, 
my kind of approach to understanding these military tropes um, follows a feminist international relations scholar, Cynthia Enlow. Uh, I generally follow her lead on this. So she's, she's written an approach which traces militarism back to patriarchy and patriarchy back to the fundamental quality of maleness can be demoralizing and even paralyzing. Perhaps it is possible to be less fixed on the discovery of, quote, original causes. It might be more useful to ask, how do these values and behaviors get repeated generation after generation? And it's that, yeah, it's that last bit, that last question, it might be more useful to ask how these things get repeated that I'm especially interested in. And yeah, really, I mean, Trope Watchers attempts to partially respond to that very question in each episode, depending on the topic. So these values and behaviours, these knowledges that get sustained across generations through tropes embedded in the stories that we consume. That's one way they pass on. Yeah. So we're going to kick off with Star Wars The Last Jedi, which listeners probably know is a divisive entry into the franchise. Uh, the three of us actually recently rewatched it, and even with us three who have, like, you know, a pretty grounded in similar ideologies in many instances. I think we still walk out being a little bit conflicted in some of the different elements. And I think some things work for some of us and not for others. Uh, But let's start in general. Uh, Scott, what were your thoughts on the film? Yeah, so I went into Last Jedi knowing that several friends of mine were highly critical of it and some of them even going so far as to hate it. Um, But I emerged from the cinema with this sort of middling feeling. It didn't and doesn't really touch my favourite films in the canon, but it's also not nearly as bad as I feared it would be. Um, So I would have it comfortably above all the prequel films and probably in and around where Return of the Jedi would be on my list. So it's more fun than not, but definitely flawed in my opinion. There were aspects I really did not like. Foremost, it kind of continued this chain of mirroring mirroring the original trilogy, which I was willing to whistle past in The Force Awakens, even though it did kind of spoil some of its bigger twists, because it served the purpose by making the film feel familiar, feel like Star Wars, but the echoes were also something other than mere repetition. They were repetitions that nevertheless kind of looked in a different direction. Great for that film, um, but I had my concerns about it persisting in Last Jedi. And I was a little disappointed that it did seemingly do that. And at least on first watch, it also felt kind of over-encumbered with plot threads. There was a bit too much to track, and some of the arcs, particularly Ray and Ben, uh, felt a little rushed in their turn as a consequence. That said, this is absolutely a film that benefits from a second viewing. I, gen- I enjoyed it a lot more when I went again with you two. Um, So you start to look for the details and the scaffolding once you know how the film actually goes. And I found that the film takes care to set up those creative choices. You just need to know to look for it. So while it was still kind of overladdened with those sort of references back to the original trilogy, and it was perhaps too quick still in parts in terms of some character arcs, I I think I had a much more overall positive reception the second time. Well, I loved it. I loved it so much. Um, It's definitely up there as one of my favorite Star Wars films. I was especially drawn to the films, uh, one of the film's key themes of uh, wisdom from failure, that failure is the best teacher. Uh, It uses so many of the characters to play with that theme. It doesn't, for example, celebrate Luke, Han, or Leia's accomplishments so much as it says, hey, these heroes you love so much, they screwed up a lot. The younger characters in this film and The Force Awakens, so Rey, Finn, and Poe, they've been holding on to the mythologized versions of these characters. And the takeaway for them in looking at history is this is what being a hero is about. They come to learn, of course, how wrong that is. That being a hero, which is just someone who fights on your side and gets things done, is often just about trial and error and luck, and in Luke's case, sometimes losing your sense of yourself in the stories people tell about you. Uh, you mentioned how, Scott, how like these films are, are mirroring the classic trilogy, um, but I think I would 
disagree about The Last Jedi. Um, the film takes you through echoes of Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, but the, like, what I'm calling the throne room scene with Snoke, where Ben does what um, Darth Vader couldn't do, which is kill the Emperor, uh, in my mind, that scene marks the end of the mirroring, and we're now in new storytelling territory, you know? So, like, the Death Star has been destroyed, essentially, the Ewoks are celebrating, um, like, where. We're, we're not going to see that yet. And it's kind of getting there is going to be really interesting and different, I think. But I take your point about it being over Latin. Um, like, but I think also that that quality is also kind of what makes this the most rewarding Star Wars film to rewatch, you know, and everyone rewatches Star Wars. I'm in love with it. I'm in love with that key theme and the rich ways that the movie like explores it. Yeah, I'm going to save the two of you. I'm falling much more into Satan's kind of <laughs> camp of how I feel about the film. Um, I I agree in terms of like what I think it does so well is there is an element of mirroring. I think certainly if we look at um, The Force Awakens, it was, you know, essentially like a new hope, but controversial statement like done better in terms of a new hope is amazing because it's the original but force awakens kind of like refines some of the points and adds more complexity and depth to some of the things that um, a new hope was attempting to do but when we get to the last jedi it feels a little bit like we're going to be doing the same thing like we're going to be mirroring uh the original trilogy in that way but instead it does so much to subvert expectations and uh really make us rethink I guess the like the thematic importance of particular things and what we feel like we really know about the Star Wars universe in I think really important and interesting ways um, particularly when we think about the hero's journey and this idea of you know we have been trained to think from the original trilogy that a hero must be connected to someone to be important which was like the original subversion in The Empire Strikes Back like that's we were already kind of, we went into Star Wars, well, you know, people in the 80s went into Star Wars, or me as a kid watching it on VHS, went into Star Wars expecting the hero to be no one, and turns out the hero is someone, and from then on the hero has always been someone, and we're kind of going back to that original idea, so I, I think that's all really interesting, and I do agree, Scott, that for myself when I first watched it, the pacing was not good, <laughs> but I felt none of the pacing problems when I rewatched it, so definitely a rewatch is required to kind of have that story all sit there and be able to follow all the storylines in ways that you're not feeling like you're just being flung around all over the place from scene to scene. And you're like, wait, I haven't really processed what just happened before you're like pushing me into the next scene. So two watches, definitely important. So let's begin with Poe. Given our focus on military leadership tropes in this episode, we obviously have to think about Poe's arc. Sertan, did you want to start with your thoughts on Poe? Uh, yes. Um, so I enjoyed Poe's arc a lot um, and didn't kind of... Uh, I mean, I suppose I kind of understand why people hated him, but I didn't understand why they were upset that they hated him. You know, like, we'll, we'll go into it a bit... Um, we'll go into it more in a bit, but yeah, you were kind of meant to hate him. Um, and the film cleverly like plays with those feelings in a lot of ways and one of the key ways it does that is through the trope he embodies the the ace pilot yeah i i personally love characters i'm supposed to hate they're my favorite kinds of characters so if it works well like yeah i I love a character i can hate Uh, we touched on the ace pilot a little bit in the intro but do you want to talk a bit more about that as a concept yeah, the ace pilot trope, uh, at least as I, I think of it, is essentially one of the main protagonists in military sci-fi. Um, almost always a cisgender male and the best pilot in the galaxy or the planet or however the the setting, however it's set up. They often have some kind of chip on their shoulder, as I mentioned earlier. They're generally privileged or burdened to carry the legacy of one or more older characters. 
Uh, obviously, as with any trope, there's room to bend or break these rules. In Battlestar Galactica, Starbuck and Apollo both fit this trope, and Starbuck subverts it uh, and bends the rules of the trope a bit through a combination of her gender and her superior piloting skills to Apollo. Um, yeah. Scott, how were we introduced to Poe in The Last Jedi? Yes, as Satan said, Poe is the best X-Wing pilot in the galaxy. That's how he's set up. And we are immediately reminded of this fact in the film's opening act. So we are introduced to Poe stalling the First Order's assault by feigning a parlay with poor signal reception before promptly and single-handedly neutering the Dreadnought's cannon defences. This was obviously designed to aid the resistance evacuation, but... Once those cannons are gone, Poe can only see a vulnerable Dreadnought after this, and so he urges a full-on assault to take it down. He disobeys an order from Leia and basically forces her hand to commit bomber fleet forces to this attack. I mean, he's very Edmure Tully in this moment, which is a reference fans of Game of Thrones will understand, in that he fails to see the long-term consequences and plan in favour of a smaller victory. But I don't think he's motivated by individual glory here. I think he has a flawed understanding of the symbolic worth of taking down a First Order Dreadnought. Flawed in the sense that he does not acknowledge or comprehend how victory does not justify the costs involved. And so we get that poignant moment where Leia notices the entire bomber fleet has been destroyed while everyone else around her is celebrating the fact that they did end up felling that Dreadnought. Right, so we've got a good idea of who Poe is as a character and how he kind of fits in as a character there. So, Sotan, how did these scenes relate to the tropes of military leadership and that ace pilot trope? Well, yeah, those initial scenes uh, with Poe, I think, establish uh, several key things and dynamics related to the trope. Poe's relationship to Leia um, and her role as the experienced military leader uh, is one of the things that it's that's um, re-established. We already know that Leia is this experienced military leader, uh, uh, and we know that Poe shares this dynamic with her way back from uh, the Force Awakens, when you know one of his first lines in that movie is in reference to Leia's military rank. But it, this scene kind of sharpens uh, that dynamic in the way that she reacts to things that he does. You know, uh, she kind of celebrates his victory over the Dreadnought, but laments the Resistance's losses in the battle. But it's also sharpened in her conversation with Poe after the mission's over, where she kind of dresses him down. And uh, yeah, a key sort of element of their dynamic is also established here uh, of... Leia's role as both mentor and maternal figure to Poe. So you already get this sense that Poe embodying the ace pilot trope, he's um, he's also somebody who's defined by his relationship to other characters who embody other tropes. So like a key way that, that this is done is um, that Leia uh, succinctly assesses Poe's leadership capabilities and we get one of the first hints that the movie is going to sort of play with our expectations of, uh, of the ace pilot trope. You're demoted. What? Wait, we, we took down the dreadnought. At what cost? You start an attack, you follow it through. Poe, get your head out of your cockpit. There, there are things that you cannot solve by jumping in an X-Wing and blowing something up. I need you to learn that. There were heroes on that mission. Dead heroes. No leaders. Poe is motivated by the idea of heroes without knowing what it means to be one as far as the film defines what being a hero is. So he's very capable of being, you know, the first to charge into battle and inspire the troops. But as um, Scott said, he's also very much in an ends justifies the means mindset. Um, And the film goes on to highlight why this is a problem rather than playing it off as one of his redeeming qualities. Yeah, and I think Leia is an interesting character to look at in this sense because Leia did grow up in a political family, which I think is something that I personally am always forgetting because I always think of her as Princess Leia and I know that you know the Star Wars universe has some interesting ways that it uses kind of royalty as opposed to more traditional like kind of political 
titles. Um, But yeah, she grew up in a political family. She has held political office herself. And she also has earned her chops as a general. Like she has proven herself, as we're seeing with the way everyone reacts to her. Everyone treats her as someone who has earned her place. So what are the divisions between politics and military leadership in the Star Wars universe? Um, well, I think the divisions are really hard to trace. Like it's, it's, it's not as easily separated. Leia, for, uh, Leia's history is very interesting with respect to this because, you know, she's, as you said, like a, a royal, a member of royalty, a royal diplomat. But she's also a key figure in the, was also a key figure in the Rebel Alliance, and I think directly, indirectly, sorry, through her adoptive father, uh, Bail Organa. Uh, so she's kind of straddling politics and military from a very, very young age, and this carries right through to the collapse of the empire, um, after which you know the New Republic is formed and. Um, Leia becomes part of that government as a senator. Uh, there's a tie-in prequel novel to The Force Awakens that kind of expounds on this, but uh, she essentially continues in this role for around 25 years, and it's not until the political scandal over the galaxy learning that her biological father was Darth Vader that her political career pretty much ends and she assumes the role and rank of general of a small military force. So for Leia, the the roles seem interchangeable, but you can see that her greatest source of life experience is learning how to straddle and sort of navigate through both worlds. And you're right in that Leia does have that kind of mentor-maternal relationship with Poe. There is this argument, I guess, that Poe embodies a sense of soloness, like he has this kind of... um, charming rebellious attitude about him that is very much like Han um so I guess the question is why is this why Leia is privileging Poe in such a way what is it about Poe specifically that makes her see him as I guess a kind of successor um as opposed to some of the other resistance soldiers that we've seen um I think you're, you're absolutely right that like uh, Leia gravitates towards Poe because of his soloness, as he said. Uh, but I think it goes a bit deeper than that too. Poe is roughly the same age as Kylo Ren and he kind of represents everything Leia would have wanted for her own son to be. And I think part of Poe recognizes this as well. Uh, it's why I think he's always shadowing her in The Last Jedi. But he also recognizes it's because he would have been someone who heard all the all of these stories of the Rebel Alliance and thought that's what a hero is without recognizing uh, the ways that Luke Han and Leia failed in the classic trilogy. Leia lied to Tarkin about the location of the Rebel Alliance's base, and the consequences of that lie was the destruction of her home planet of Alderaan. Luke thought he could save his friends without completing his training, but really he had little to do with his friends escaping Cloud City and got into a fight with Vader that resulted in his hand getting chopped off. And with Han, you kind of get this sense that he's someone who has a long history of failures and the best, most correct thing he's ever done in his life was join the Rebels. And, you know, uh, this is before we even get into these characters' present circumstances. Luke with his self-imposed exile, Leia and Han as absentee parents... Uh, all Poe understands from this history is the successes and everything else kind of falls away. He doesn't grasp that these near-mythic people fucked up many times over and had to learn and relearn from their mistakes. Uh, He both represents and seems to actively be pursuing the ace pilot trope, but where other stories might treat this as like an endearing sort of, you know positive quality, The Last Jedi treats it as destructive and egoistic glory-seeking. So this is probably a good time to then introduce Vice Admiral Holdo to the conversation. Um, When Leia is incapacitated, Vice Admiral Holdo is the person who is introduced to the plot, and it is one of those great moments where we're like, who is this person? (laughs) Clearly where it has been built up in that way where... You see Poe and he's thinking, I'm the one who's going to be 
stepping in and taking over and then this person we've never heard of before or never seen before um at least you know if you're only watching the films steps in scott what were your thoughts on holdo yeah i'm i'm kind of afraid that to say it was initially like pose i say initially because i've kind of swung the entire opposite direction since watching it again but yeah my initial impression of holdo was who the fuck is this what is the background yeah all, all that kind of, probably everything that uh poe is thinking in that moment when he clearly expects to be named the new leader in leia's absence for some reason i don't know why he just got demoted why why does he think in that moment that he's going to take over and he, he's clearly taken aback when holdo is announced instead and then in walks this slender woman complete with purple hair and decked out in a soft purple dress she has this history of military achievement but it is all utterly informed at this point by the nameless alien comrade that I doubt Poe even knows the name of. I don't think we ever get the name of that guy. So I just have to take it as fact that she is this legend. And Poe certainly struggles to accept it as well. And I do have to wonder about this reaction, both Poe's and mine. Um, listeners of our sister series, The Clash of Critics, our scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, plug, will know that lately I have been trying to unpack my initial reactions to certain characters in that fiction to understand the extent to which I may have been influenced by internalized norms. That is to say, the extent to which my past opinions were unconsciously shaped by how our culture understands gender, sexuality, race, and so forth. This has led to some rather uncomfortable realizations, but I think it is important to continue to track this and to do so publicly on air without lapsing back into defensiveness, because we are all to varying degrees unconsciously constrained by these norms. So hopefully these self-reflections can serve, you know, as a template for others, particularly those men who sympathize with feminism or non-people of color who believe in racial justice, who nevertheless struggle to accept that they still are entrapped by these norms too, still perpetuate them in other ways. I think Holdo may present another example of this a scarily recent example of this because she's she is deliberately coded as feminine so with her hair and the and the attire that i spotlighted earlier it is so rare to see such a character in a leadership position foremost but also a military one that basically looks like this um, and because the trope is the complete opposite representation i find it i found it hard to be convinced by this figure but like I said, for the record, I brought her more into her on a second viewing. Yeah, I think that's a important insight that she has been deliberately dressed in this way. This wasn't just a rogue costume designer. <laughs> like, yeah, I really like purple. I'm going to do this. Um, it was a conscious decision. So let's talk about this um, resistance to Holdo. We've got, I guess, two different areas that we can look at. We've got the broader backlash of audiences against Holdo and we've also got Poe himself and how he responds to Holdo and how he's clearly not ready to accept her as the leader. So Sertan, to what extent are both of these responses gendered? And in addition to that, why do you think Holdo withholds the knowledge of her plan from Poe? Um... Well, uh, I suppose addressing the first bit first, <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, the, the backlash against Holdo is uh, totally gendered. Um, it's not just her physical experience, uh, which, you know, Scott, I think you went into like really great detail about. Um, and I think is, as you said, Mia, like a very deliberate and important way, uh, important for the way like we're supposed to code her appearance. But also, like, there is a common character type in especially military-based genre fiction of a male military leader who holds key information close to their chest for good reason, ostensibly good reasons. But when female characters inhabit this type and withhold information, there tends to be a backlash even if those characters have demonstrated a good sense of the fictional world that they inhabit and live in. And yeah, of course, Holdo wouldn't tell Poe what the plan is. Like, the movie wants us to feel frustrated for Poe because he's the ace pilot, and the ace pilot is the one you root for. But if you th just think about it for a second, 
Holdo knows two distinct things about Poe. Um, aside from completely messing up the last mission, he doesn't uh, and doesn't you know seem too broken up about all of the dead pilots uh, under his command. He was also demoted by Leia, so trust-wise, there's not much there, and military hierarchy-wise, there's even less reason to share anything uh, with Poe. Um, but there's another layer here too. Poe doesn't see that Leia, his you know maternal figure, the, this um, this woman who he looks up to and trusts and admires, she entrusted Holdo with leadership in case she was inca- incapacitated. So, uh, yeah, Poe's reaction is totally gendered and sexist, and I would argue that um, the, the backlash, the general audience backlash against. Uh, Holdo is also uh, gendered. Yeah. yeah, and that is a good point in that Poe doesn't seem to react to all of the deaths that his actions alone have caused. Like, this wasn't an inevitable thing. This was something that specifically because he disobeyed orders has happened. Um, and I do think it is interesting that the only two people that we really see struggling f- throughout Uh, these films in terms of like struggling with the idea that their actions are going to have consequences and those consequences are not just you know they might lose some ground but like people are actually dying because of it the only two people we're seeing really being affected by that is Leia and Holdo they do see every single death as something that's tragic and yeah I feel like we could do a whole (laughs) episode on that kind of (laughs) the the gendered nature of empathy um but certainly after watching it, even after watching it the first time, but definitely after watching it the second time, I'm like, yeah, why would Holdo tell this pilot all of the top secret plans of the entire like Rebel Alliance? Why, why would she need to divulge that? So, Scott, what, I guess, what would explanation would you offer for why viewers struggle to understand Holdo's secrecy or why some viewers struggle to understand that secrecy. Yeah, um, just first I would also spotlight that Holdo has no idea how the First Order are also tracking the fleet, so it could be a mole on the ship, uh, like we've discussed off-air as well. So that's another reason why she wouldn't really necessarily spread information to someone she doesn't trust, just in case that information reaches the wrong hands and that's how they're tracking the fleet too. But the reason why some some viewers may struggle to understand Holdo's secrecy is also because I feel like, A, we're deeply entrenched in Poe's point of view at this point, but I wouldn't look past the fact that the plan itself originates from Finn and Rose, who are quite likable, who are quite endearing as they finish each other's thoughts and realize what must be done, you know, as they conceive of how to go about saving the fleet. So we are positioned to support it, to hope It succeeds for Finn and Rose's sake, even when we ought to feel disquieted by Poe's actions. And even when it comes to the coup uh, later on, uh, Poe's basically stalling time for Finn and Rose to get out, which we want as well. So we're still kind of positioned to support Poe's actions, even though it's primarily anchored in our support for Finn and Rose. The way Poe... Poe's storyline is tied to Finn and Rose kind of also complicates how as an audience we're meant to feel about Finn and Rose's arc um, because the thing is if their mission had succeeded uh, it would mean that Poe would have successfully undermined Holdo um, and in these types of stories you know the ace pilot undermining the authority of a superior officer is really common uh, and very well-trodden ground. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting that Poe fails miserably uh, at that. And how do you feel about the end of Holdo's arc? So, like, I think, I mean, that's that's a um, brilliant way for Holdo to finish her arc, aside from the fact that it reveals um, her true intentions and her true character uh, to the audience. It's also just, like, a great, you know, finish. Um, but it's also obviously and more quietly a key scene for Poe. Uh, everything he thought he knew about Holdo and by extension being a figure people look up to for guidance, inspiration and direction was wrong. 
And how do we feel about the resolution of Pozark in the film? Yeah, honestly, I didn't think he had a resolution on the first viewing, but uh, like Satan kind of mentioned in his sort of uh, general thoughts preamble, you know, I was kind of like lost in the spectacle of Star Wars and bouncing between plot threads to the point where I was a little bit lost in the first viewing. Um, so on the second viewing, I realized that Poe kind of recognizes uh, through what Luke's doing, stalling the First Order, that they could escape to fight another day. So if I had to say he had a resolution, it'd be about learning when to fight and when to survive, not necessarily going in for the heroic sacrifice. Yeah, Poe doesn't really get a redemption story in this movie. He His whole arc, whole arc it seems to be to learn a really tough lesson, which I guess if you wanted to like reduce it or distill it, uh, would be, you know, going from some guy who believes in the ends justifying the means to some guy going like, the no, the means actually is an important, critical thing uh, to justify the ends. The way you do things matters. Um, but I guess we'll have to see if uh, he applies that lesson in the final film in the trilogy. Yeah, and I mean, we guess... We do see a hint of it in this film in that he tells Finn to pull back in that final scene, or not the final scene, but that final kind of um, arc, I guess, in like it's literally the inversion of the opening scene of the film where he pushes even though he's been told to back off and now he's the person telling someone to back off. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic that he's learned a valuable lesson there. And on that note, we'll move on to Battlestar Galactica. Now, this is a show I have not seen, but the two of you are both fans. So, Satan, can you talk a little bit about what Battlestar Galactica is and what makes it stand out? Uh, Battlestar Galactica is a post-apocalyptic space opera. It follows a small population of humanity's last survivors as they escape the Cylons, a machine race that they created. For me, it's a show of contradictions. On the one hand, it's about the horror and futility of war, the viscera of it, the way it breaks people, and so on. On the other, it's a show that sort of reifies militarism. It reifies its machines, like the way the military characters find a home in the hulking military spaceship, the Battlestar Galactica. It reifies military rank, codes of conduct, and protocol. It reifies its objects and paraphernalia, like the badges that signify uh, superior ranks. And it reifies certain types of people who inhabit the show's brand of militarism. Yeah, so BSG is easily my pick for the greatest science fiction television series ever, and it would go very high on my overall list as well. Um, I'd echo everything Satan just said, and would add that for a show steeped in that kind of militarism, there are some magnificent characters aboard Battlestar Galactica. You get those... Yeah, I mean, you know those military dramas that are just packed with boring two-dimensional caricatures of troops and leaders and so forth, but this, this show certainly is not one of them. Um, there are some stellar arcs going on throughout the show, and it's definitely well worth checking out. I, I would recommend it heartily to you, Mia. And I think it's absolutely a show that I might enjoy even more on the second viewing, which is going to be a few years down the line before I do that, of course, but... There is just so much going on thematically and philosophically, not to mention on a narrative macro scale in terms of um, debates about prophecy and destiny. So it'll be interesting to see how the knowledge that I have now of how the series goes shifts how I view certain early seasons. So kind of like The Last Jedi in a way, where my knowledge of how the film pans out broadly um, led to a much richer engagement with my second viewing. Sitan, tell us about Admiral William Adama. Um, Adama represents a shift in how military leaders are represented, but he's also a reinforcement of the centrality of the military leader character in, in military sci-fi. Uh, he's an embodiment of military rank, but he's also steeped in paternalism. His portrayal, I should say, is steeped in paternalism. Uh, he's kind of, 
He's referred to as the old man by everyone on the Battlestar Galactica, so he's kind of the father of this very large family. Um, but he's also quite, like, when he needs to, he also leans heavily onto, like, his rank and superiority to his uh, subordinate officers. He also represents sort of uh, an interesting shift in how these character types uh, wage war. Uh, there's a great speech from the miniseries where he talks about the old Cylon War. You know, when we fought the Cylons, we did it to save ourselves from extinction. But we never answered the question, why? Why are we as a people worth saving? We still commit murder because of greed spite, jealousy, and we still visit all of our sins upon our children. We refuse to accept the responsibility for anything that we've done. Like we did with the Cylons. We decided to play God. Create life. When that life turned against us, we comforted ourselves in the knowledge that it really wasn't our fault, not really. You cannot play God, then wash your hands of the things that you've created. Sooner or later, the day comes when you can't hide from the things that you've done anymore. He also represents a respect for military rank and protocol. And this is kind of the way he reinforces uh, the tropian bodies there's both a formality in how he expects people to talk to him but also an informality in how he conducts himself as the father figure of the fleet um, and and it's that tension that sort of like highlights uh, his feelings around military rank and protocol um, as well as his role uh, in the show and lastly, I think the last point I want to make about him is uh, is his views on governmentality. He's got this very um, almost simplistic, I'd say, idea of um, the military um, and how it functions within a within a government. Again, there's a great quote he has. There's a reason why you separate military and the police. One fights the enemy of the state. The other serves and protects the people. When the military becomes both, then the enemies of the state tend to become the people. Yeah, so that's uh, Adama. <laughs> so Adama is basically left in command of the entire military fleet because he he's in command of the only Battlestar that survives the initial Holocaust wave. Um, and I do find the kind of, would you say it's humanistic philosophy that kind of like bedevils a bunch of these characters in the decisions they must make while waging war? Um, it's kind of, it, it leads to just kind of a very interesting uh, representation of leadership in Battlestar Galactica. And I do find that philosophic question, so within his monologue, why are we as a people worth saving, to be both one of the show's more impressive themes, as well as one of its more aggravating aspects, as you know, Satan, we've argued about this many times on there. <laughs> it, <laughs> it definitely presents itself at a number of very intensive moments, which not only indicate a consistent thesis, which is great, but also compel me to scream at the television, be wannabe philosophers when the fate of the species and countless powerless lives are not at stake. God damn it. And I know exactly how Satan is going to push back on me here. It is precisely in these most critical, pressured scenarios when we should consider these questions. It is precisely in those moments when what it means to be a human are determined. But then... By what right does anyone have to make that decision on behalf of the entire civilization? These mostly men are in the position to decide by fluke, but even if they were elected and elected post-Holocaust, I would still feel a great deal of discomfort with the notion of them deciding if we, humanity, are worth saving. 
Um, Adama clearly does delineate a division between military and civilian domains. Obviously, this is tied with his initial lack of trust in Rosalind's presidency, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, I also think it's worth highlighting his confrontation with uh, Battlestar Pegasus and Helena Kane here. Kane represents the perverse conflation of both these domains. Military need trumps all other needs. And so we get those troubling reports about the abandonment of civilian ships stripped of every valuable resource and able-bodied skilled individuals, um, the so-called waste, human and otherwise, left behind to die. Adama's opposition to Kane is obviously about more than just that, of course, but I do find the contrast in their views on waging war quite interesting, especially because Adama, in the beginning, came very close to becoming Kane himself. So, Scott, you mentioned President Roslin. Can you elaborate on the distrust of her leadership? Yeah, so um, first some context. Um, humanity has been brought to the brink of extinction, like Satan said. Um, the series follows the remaining survivors, which is a convoy fleet of about 40,000 humans initially. I, I think, think it's 50,000. 50,000. Um, yeah, so this convoy is guided by the sole remaining Battlestar-class ship and its Viper squadrons. Um, and the series just tracks how they endure in the aftermath of uh, the apocalypse um so basically it's the walking dead done right um and one of the crunchiest parts of this setup is that almost the entire political leadership of the 12 colonies is wiped out by the initial wave of attack and the law dictates that the most senior remaining official becomes president in such an event which leaves laura Roslin in charge the Minister for Education. <laughs> and to add further pressure on this poor woman, she's just been diagnosed with terminal cancer as well. So a lot of the early series focuses on her right to lead and her growth into the role. And Rosalind faces a significant amount of initial derision, uh, especially from Adama. But as the series continues, Rosalind has medication-induced visions, heralding religious prophecy, and she begins to make decisions based on these. So we have a female character perceived to be out of a league. Uh, she's spiritual, she's emotional, and um, she's fragile because of her cancer. But she's also one of the more unsettling characters in the show. I feel some of her actions feel um, quite disquieting in an authoritarian sense. And she is demonstrably more strident and ruthless than even Adama appoints. So Rosalind is certainly complicated as a character. Sertan, tell us a bit more about the cancer diagnosis. Um, is there a... Do you think the show is playing into this idea of the kind of a gendered idea of durability, of women being less durable than men? Um, and is there any parallel here in terms of her keeping this diagnosis secret to Holdo's strategy of keeping plans secret? Well, yeah, with respect to the first question... Uh, it's interesting because when I first watched the show, and I think this was probably true for a lot of people initially watching the show, um, Rosalind's cancer diagnosis kind of put this vague countdown clock on her life and made it really sort of, gave her future a really sort of uh, uncertainty. Uh, there was a sense that, you know, um, she could kind of pass away at any moment in the series and be replaced by by somebody and of course you know spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the show she doesn't die until the very last episode but i think it kind of it kind of does feed into the trope of women being quote less durable than than men that um that you know classic trope <laughs> but like it also uh subverts it in the sense that her cancer is often going into remission um, and she's often uh, there are points in the show where her body you know despite the fact that her body is breaking down she is still conducting herself as uh, the leader of the you know last remaining survivors of the 12 colonies but I definitely think that like there is a similarity uh, an overlap here in sort of Rosalind um, using her knowledge of her cancer and Holdo strategically keeping her plan a secret. Both are actually strategic decisions, uh, but I think um, the response to them is 
um, is also very is also very similar. So, so Rosalind, uh, withholding knowledge of her cancer, ties to her belief in the continuity of government and the continuity of leadership. She recognizes that, uh, for very strategic, pragmatic reasons, that if the last remaining survivors learned that she had cancer, that it would be kind of like this final nail in the coffin of uh, the old government that um, uh, that humanity had relied on before the Cylons' uh, devastating attack. So in her mind, withholding that knowledge is, is necessary. But, uh, but there's also this sense that, you know, withholding that knowledge is also kind of like none of anybody's business. Um, and she only shares it with a very tight circle of people. One of the first people who learns about it, uh, one of the first main characters who learns about it is Apollo. And it's that sharing of knowledge that kind of builds this trust uh, between them. There is another element, though, that kind of genders this in a way uh, that's perhaps different to Holdo, which is the which is what Scott mentioned the uh, the the prophecies that she's the pro- uh, the prophetic visions that she's guided by. There's like this element of um, this suggestion of irrationality that I think is coded as uh, feminine. The, you know, the sense that she's like, quote, like a crazy woman who's leading humanity to, to their destruction. But the show kind of, yeah, the show plays with that as well. Um, it, it basically, uh, her prophecies kind of split the fleet at one point in the show. Um, so it's given kind of credence and it's given this, this legitimacy uh, that's on par with anything that Adama represents, you know, uh, as being sort of the leader of the military and so on. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting things there with Rosalind. Yeah, I, I feel like Sontag would have some interesting things to say about this representation of cancer. Um, but Scott mentioned earlier about uh, ruthlessness that Rosalind displays in her leadership. So in the show, do you feel that the presentation of that ruthlessness is um, executed in this kind of gendered, uh, irrational way, or is it something else? I think on some levels it's absolutely gendered, uh, this sense that Roslyn kind of, but I think I mean I, I say this with the under, uh, with the belief that this was a deliberate creative choice that uh, Roslyn um, sometimes goes for the more ruthless hardline decision to appear to be as strong a leader as Adama, uh, which is kind of also reflective of the expectations um, and burdens placed on women who run for public office in the real world. Uh, this sense that, you know, they, this pressure to be a tough leader, you know, tough on crime, tough on immigrants, etc. There is that level to it. As for whether it's like steeped in irrationality, it's kind of, that's kind of tied to the prophecy stuff as well. There is a credence and legitimacy to, uh, given to Rosalind's ruthlessness. At one point, uh, I think the most sort of gendered slash irrational moment for her in the show is towards uh, is in the fourth season when she is led to believe that Adama has died um, in a in uh, in a military coup, and she sort of announces via like you know to the whole fleet that she's coming for the leaders of the coup uh, of the coup that she's gonna direct all of her like resources everything she has to basically getting revenge and there's this sort of expectation she has that um yeah everyone's gonna go along with this that like they're gonna follow her in this pursuit for vengeance i mean it's a great scene uh it's a fantastic scene um but i think that's the closest the show ever comes to sort of making her seem i guess irrational now, Battlestar Galactica has its own ace pilot. Uh, so, Tan, tell us how Apollo compares to Poe in The Last Jedi. Um, well, he's got the same sense of entitlement, 
but unlike Poe and unlike Starbuck, uh, Lee's plagued with uh, a great deal of self-doubt, I think. Um, his family name allows him to navigate spaces familiar, like the military, and unfamiliar, like the legal system, with this sort of entitled confidence, like he's supposed to be there. Uh, but yeah, he's plagued with self-doubt. Um, there's a question that hangs over him the way it doesn't really for Poe, which is, have I owned this? Of course, coming from such a family as he does, I mean, he's basically royalty in this show. Uh, that question is, artic is articulated differently by him. Uh, like the way he sees it is, do I want this? And by this, I mean a military life. Uh, also, unlike Poe, he can sometimes see past the mythic figure of his father and his maternal figure in Rosalind. Uh, he looks up to his dad and Rosalind a great deal, but Lee's an idealist, uh, first and foremost. It's why he betrays them both at separate points in the show. First his dad when he joins Rosalind in her spiritual quest, and then Rosalind when he uses the knowledge of her re-emerging cancer against her in the trial of Balta. Right, and uh, so Sertan just compared Apollo briefly to Starbuck. Scott, can you tell us a little bit more about Starbuck? Yeah, um, in fact, uh, Lee's not even the ace pilot of the series. Um, we need to talk about Cara Three Starbuck in that respect. Like, she is the, capital T, ace pilot of this show. And I think it's safe to say that Starbuck is probably the face of BSG's sort of pop culture pop cultural consciousness um there's a reason why she appears in the big bang theory as a, as a reference to the show just like spock and obi-wan kenobi and for their respective franchises she's certainly one of the most interesting characters in the series in no small measure because of the way she flips and inverts so many gendered norms but also in the way in which those subversions are in turn not just interchanged femininity for masculinity right so by that i mean she's a female pilot a female pilot that clearly possesses certain masculine traits. She's abrasive and macho. Um, at one point, she literally beats the crap out of Lee in a boxing match. Um, she's talented, textually the best Viper pilot Galactica has. Uh, she talks dirty, sleeps around, drinks heavy. Um, think about how we are introduced to her, Satan. Gambling, drinking, needling, uh, Colonel Ty about his failed marriage. <laughs> And then you're running on Starbuck. Starbuck. Where'd you get that nickname anyway? Is that before you were thrown in the brink as a cadet for drunk and disorderly or after? After. After. That's right, it was. After. I'm in. That's T U X O. I'm in. How's the wife? I am pretty sure she's smoking a cigar at some point too. Um, Thrace spends a good deal of our first moments with her doing time in the brig for insubordination. <laughs> this is not rebellion for, re for rebellion's sake either. Thrace genuinely feels that Colonel Ty is a dangerous leader. Lieutenant Thrace, Kara, what you did out there today with Liadama. It was um, a hell of a piece of flying. The commander has always said that you were the best pilot he has ever seen. Well, today you proved it. Now, um, about yesterday, during the game, well, maybe I was out of line too, and I just I wanted to say, um, I'm sorry. Well, don't you have anything to say? Permission to speak off the record, sir. Granted. You're a bastard. You just don't know when to keep your mouth shut, do you? I am offering you a clean slate here. I'm not interested in a clean slate with you. You're dangerous. You know why? This'll be good. <laughs> because you're weak. Because you're a drunk. Are you done? Yes, sir. 
You return to flight status. <laughs> Let's see how long that lasts. I would like her, but she's also feminine in some respects as well. So she's also quite spiritual. Um, she has a faith. Uh, she's artistic. And she's emotionally unstable at points, <laughs> to, to some points perhaps excessively so. Um, Starbuck is complicated. She's frayed at the edges and fraying further. Um, she's badass, but also fragile. A very, very fascinating character. Sertan, I understand that the writers have kind of gender-flipped Starbuck from original 70s series um, in the adaptation for this reboot. Uh, can you run us through the initial fan reactions to the news and what your thoughts are on Starbuck as a character? Yeah, well, I think the only fans who cared about this were the ones who loved the original show's Starbuck. Uh, and I suppose uh, um, people who have a reflexive knee-jerk hate on for anything, quote, politically correct... I love Starbuck. Although I'm familiar with the original Starbuck, I haven't seen the original series. Um, but as someone who'd love to see a gender-flipped Han Solo, I don't think I would give two fracks about the decision to gender-flip Starbuck. Um, more importantly, though, the writers and Katie Sackhoff, who play Starbuck, did a lot of interesting things with this gender-flip. Uh, Scott goes into it a lot more. Um, but, like, Starbuck still has this Starbuck, I should say, still has swagger, still smokes cigars, sleeps around, is super charismatic and so on. Um, but her gender flip doesn't solely function to Starbuck gender <laughs> stereotype. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> we see a lot of different dimensions to her throughout the show and the gender flip eventually figures very little in defining her overall character. It's just kind of a great starting point for the writers to build from. So why is it then that Apollo ends up in a greater leadership or in greater leadership positions as well as transitioning into politics? Is it just a matter of their interests um, and or nepotism or is there something else going on in the show, in the way the show is written? Yeah, I think like this question of uh, why Lee tends to climb higher and uh, end up in greater leadership positions is um, a really interesting one. Um, and I think it's, uh, again, like so many of these tropes, uh, a, a gendered phenomenon. Um, the perfect example of this uh, is in the season one episode, Hand of God. Uh, in this episode, the survivors of the 12 colonies desperately like needed a win against the Cylons, and a promising one came along uh, when they discovered an asteroid that was being mined by the Cylons. Uh, Starbuck, who was injured in a previous episode and so is grounded from flying, uh, develops and leads a strategy to destroy the Cylon refinery. Apollo, in Starbuck's uh, absence takes the lead on piloting the mission um, and the episode highlights Starbucks out-of-the-box thinking and his skills as a Viper pilot. Um, Apollo performs like ends up performing a Hail Mary that essentially saves the mission from failure but the mission was otherwise recognized as being tactically brilliant on uh, Starbucks part. But, like, despite the fact that Starbuck is functioning in a role that would ordinarily earn her a promotion in this show's universe, or that we as an audience would flag as a turning point for her character as she assumes a more command-based role, nothing really comes of it for her. She goes back to being a pilot, um, and Apollo kind of does too, except when he's eventually promoted to commander of the Battlestar Pegasus. I don't know that you can sort of separate this as a matter of uh, differing interests between them. Uh, you know, Apollo having an interest in command or being a politician eventually or whatever. Uh, and this being a gendered phenomenon. I think they're both kind of the same thing here. On one level, there's the real world gendered phenomenon of women generally being conditioned to believe they aren't as capable as men in the same roles. But on another level, there's the 
gendered phenomenon in the show of Starbuck being built up for command over the course of the first season, then kind of unconvincingly deciding she doesn't want the pressure of command, and then being passed over for command of the Battlestar Pegasus, despite the way the show positioned her next to Admiral Kane, uh, the only other female military leader in the series. And then kind of blowing her up in a storm cloud, because, you know, apparently that's her destiny. Uh, like she just she she just painted her own death um over and over from the time of her childhood i guess what i'm saying is is that starbuck not wanting leadership roles uh didn't quite make sense for her growth as a character regardless of her self-destructive tendencies uh but makes perfect sense if you think about this in terms of assuming some gender bias on the part of the show's writers so, Tan, thank you so much for joining us and lending your insight and expertise to this episode. Thanks for having me. You can find Sotan on Twitter. We'll link it both in the episode description and also on our website. If you're a fan of Trope Watchers, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps other people find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website, www.tropewatchers.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatchers. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatchers. You can also email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your Trip Watchers.